Welcome to the Omfair Podcast. Welcome to today's Omfair Podcast with Christine Mikulogic, EMEA COO for Global Client Management at Bank New York Mellon. Christine leads the bank's research in the public asset owner space and has recently produced a white paper titled The Evolution of Public Asset Owners. As one of the world's largest custodians with more than 43 trillion in assets under custody or administration, Bank New York Mellon works closely with public asset owners and other institutions around the world, which gives them a unique insight to those institutions evolving ambitions, challenges, and outlooks. We are very pleased to have Christine with us today to discuss this report, especially at a time when public asset owner management is in a state of flux, given the current macroeconomic environment and rapidly changing geopolitical, technological, and investment developments. I'm Patricia Haas Cleveland, U.S. President of OMFIF. Christine, welcome and congratulations on a very comprehensive and insightful report. Your report concludes with some very interesting findings about public asset owners, their investment strategy, operating models, and adoption of technology. But let's begin with the backstory of the report. What prompted you to undertake this research? So thanks very much, Patricia. BNY Mellon is privileged to work with an extraordinary set of public asset owners worldwide. And something we were noticing is that public asset owners are really beginning to evolve and change how they approach the market. They're really shaping market structures. They're thinking more ambitiously about their missions and visions. And we really wanted to get under the hood of what that means for their investment strategies and for their operating models and try to understand the impact this is having, you know, non, not just on the financial markets, but also more broadly on their communities regionally, locally, and globally. So as we alluded at the outset, it's a complicated world today. There's many changing and shifting factors that these companies have dealt with uh, in the past, typically. Tell us about some of the key challenges that they're facing today. Absolutely. And you know, this was the really interesting part of, of the work that we undertook. And, and we spoke to over 90 senior leaders across the public asset owner space globally, uh, representing almost 50 institutions. And you know, speaking to all these individuals, you know, we, we really got a sense of you know, what were their day-to-day -day challenges, but what was really keeping them up at night uh, on, a, on a broader scale? And where did they really see the big opportunities and, and challenges? And you know, a few of the things that, that really resonated globally and at the individual regional level was a number of what we called key trends or key mega trends. And, and this included, you know, there are there's obviously been the macroeconomic environment. And you know, we have to acknowledge here that, you know, as we undertook this work a year ago, our macroeconomic environment was different than it is today. But in fact, that's you know all the more so a factor that we have to take in when we consider the challenges that public asset owners face. Uh, there's also you know the ESG imperative that has remained true and is is now even more sort of important. We also have demands for transparency, and this was a really interesting one because you know once upon a time it was regulation that was driving the the focus on transparency. Today it's 
you know, it's even more complex factors like social media and, you know, concerns around, you know, negative stories going viral, but also how, you know, the public has new expectations when it comes to what they'll be able to see um, about their public institutions. We've got data and, you know, the promise that data has in terms of offering up more value. And there's technological change that's brought both opportunities, but also the flip side, which is, you know, new threats such as, um, you know, cybersecurity threats. So, you know, taking all of these together, you know, we really see that the world of public asset owners is at an inflection point. And one final sort of key pressure that I'll add, and, and this is one that, you know, was brought up, it was, was brought up by institutions all over the globe, uh, whether central banks, public pension funds, or sovereign wealth funds, and that's the race for talent. So people uh, and the issues surrounding people, retention, uh, engagement, recruitment, that came up time and time again, whether we were speaking to a small central bank or a leading sovereign wealth fund. Well, you covered a lot of grounds there. I mean, search for yield, ESG, transparency, data, technology innovation. So tell us a little bit about how public asset owners are responding to these sort of mega trends. What do you see in terms of how their approaches differ if you look, for instance, across central banks, sovereign wealth funds, and public pension funds? Certainly. Um, well, look, across all of these segments and across all the different types of public asset owners, we're really seeing a desire to move assets into more dynamic areas. And, and, and we are seeing this happen across central banks, public pension funds, and sovereign wealth funds. And you're right to point out how are these approaches different, because of course, you know, central banks will have you know, different policy objectives and different investment guidelines than do sovereign wealth funds. But so central banks, we're seeing them either go into or explore equities. You know, sometimes this is by dipping their toes through ETFs. Sometimes it's actually creating um, equities desks, but also, you know, mortgage-backed securities or, you know, going into um, more global portfolios. So, you know, the, the days of just the, the pure sort of sovereign debt portfolio, it's, the picture's evolving since then. Um, public pension funds, you know, we're really, as much as they've got to have those, those bonds, of course, um, they're also, you know, a, adjusting their SAA, their strategic asset allocations to allow for more alternatives investments. You know, some of the bigger ones, of course, are continuing to get into very ambitious partnerships. And then you've got the sovereign wealth funds that, you know, have always been at the forefront of investment. But, you know, there we're seeing interest in digitized assets. And, and I'm not saying cryptocurrencies here. I mean, you know, tokenized assets uh, are, are really where some sovereign wealth funds want to not just reap benefits and returns, but they actually want to shape the market. Uh, and we've also heard, you know, exciting perspectives on, you know, areas like the space economy as well, where some of the, you know, Middle Eastern institutions, for instance, are very interested in, in you know, potential, you know, a, a more longer range vision. Well, that's very interesting. I mean, so often it's easy for one to sort of lump all these global public investors together in a basket and say, you know, they're all very similar because they're all public investors. And yet you've really broken out how, in fact, they are very different in their approach and the challenges and sort of what they're trying to achieve. So that's, that's fascinating to hear about that. 
let's look to returns and generating returns. Apart from diversification into other asset classes, what else are public asset owners considering or doing to generate returns? Well, one thing you know, just I'd like to begin by you know stating something which I think is important here, which is that you know returns isn't the primary objective for some of these institutions, right? A central bank always has you know the security of their reserves at the forefront of their minds, and then sovereign wealth funds will will be looking for alpha more aggressively. But even within that context, you know, as as institutions have you know looked at uh, their investment, how to tweak their investment strategy, get more yield, they're also looking at other areas like internal yield enhancing mechanisms. So when we conducted a survey, in addition to our, our interviews of the public asset owner space, we found that half of the institutions surveyed were looking at internal yield adjustment mechanisms such as collateral management, but also securities lending. A third actually planned on expanding their security services programs, um, either by liberalizing their lending guidelines or, you know, opening up uh, new assets to, to lending. Is this a trend that you anticipate continuing and that these companies will explore these sort of the aspects of yield generation even more, because it is a shift from just, as you said, focusing on return in the more traditional way. Yes, definitely. And, and one of the reasons for that is that you know, some of the main barriers that have stood in the way of more securities lending are, are really being addressed by the industry. So um, you know, for a long time, there's been a bit of a you know, hangover from the 2008 years when it comes to securities lending uh, and, you know, some concerns around transparency, for instance, or the flexibility of the platforms. But right now, we're seeing real developments in terms of regulators uh, sort of promoting the role of securities lending in the market. We're seeing the technology improve so that there's a lot more visibility into what's being lent and how. And it's not just that voting calendars for instance, are integrated, but you've got more complex API integrations so that you can really have visibility into your securities lending program up in the front office alongside you know, the rest of your portfolio. So I certainly expect that this will be an area where the industry will continue to evolve and where institutions are going to see that this is you know, another you know, great way to, to generate results and revenue. And it's, it's, it's not just going to be something that's in the back office, but actually um, something that is in the front office alongside you know, other strategies. Well, that's a very interesting takeaway from the report. So thank you for that elaboration. Let's turn now to business models. What do you see as the implications of these trends for the business models of public asset owners. How are you seeing those evolve and play out? I think that's a great question because I, I think you know when we're looking at you know how these institutions conduct their business, right? We you know there are institutions that are you know very advanced in terms of how they run their operations, but we also spoke to plenty of institutions that are still you know struggling with you know, certain parts of their operating model where where work is still manual or where you know a lot of institutions like so many others rely on on Excel and really want more advanced tools, and then others are are really thinking about you know how do we future proof our operating models? How do we build resilience? into the system so that you know we can adapt more quickly to the changes to come 
And, and a salient, uh, you know, or very, very striking statistic is only 6% of the institutions that we surveyed were actually satisfied with their operating models, just 6%. So that means that, you know, overwhelmingly, the public asset owner space does not feel that their operations are ready for what they want to do, not just ready for what they want to do today, but ready for what they want to do in the future. And we really wanted to get under the hood of, you know, what were the key issues for these institutions. And I will say that, you know, encouragingly, um, the majority are, you know, aware that this is a real problem and have prioritized this in terms of their activity. So, 63% of, of public asset owners um, are either, you know, actively planning or, or already have an operating model transformation underway. And when I say transformation, you know, I don't mean just an improvement here or, uh, you know, increased efficiency there. I mean these sort of programmatic endeavors that really aim to bring the institution forward and really create a step change in their operations. And, you know, I think this this is this is really encouraging. On the other hand, it makes you wonder about the you know the thirty seven percent that still sort of haven't tackled this and still you know aren't yet thinking about how to how to improve the efficiency of their operations. That six percent number that you quoted is an amazing statistic. That only six percent of your respondents are satisfied with their operating model. And I noticed in the report, it said as an example, for instance, one central bank deals with cybersecurity issues by simply turning off its internet during a crisis. So clearly, this consideration of transformation is is critical, and it's understandable. Many of these institutions have legacy systems. They don't necessarily have folks in the place who are completely current with all the latest innovative technologies and approaches. Tell us a little bit more about how you see them transitioning or transforming. Uh, what sorts of things can they do and are they considering doing? I think the place I'd start with this is how have institutions thought about what their greatest challenges are and, and, and what are the what are their ambitions for their operating models? And what we found was that overwhelmingly the issues are are systemic. So institutions are really taking a big picture look at their operating models. So as I mentioned, they don't just want to, let's say, tweak their order management system in the front office. Um, they don't just want to do reconciliation better in the middle office. When we asked what their top challenges were in the front office, it was general streamlining. In the middle office, it was again, efficiency and overall general streamlining of processes, which is what 63% of, of institutions highlighted as their top priority. And when you when you consider that these problems are more um, overarching, then that really shapes how you're going to approach your transformation. So, you know, we spoke to you know institutions all over the world about how they were transforming. At least that 63% that are, and we we basically saw two big approaches. The first is what I'd call these sort of foundational system overhauls, where institutions take a system such as, let's say, an Aladdin or a SimCorp or Wall Street, you know, often systems that they're already implementing in some capacity, and really stretching them end to end across the operating model and and making sure that you know, they're able to really realize as much efficiency and provide as much visibility end to end. 
Um, the alternative to this is to take a more component-based approach. So you'll have institutions that uh, undergo these holistic programs where they really identify what they want to improve in the front, middle, and back office, and then make sure that all the improvements that they perform can then be integrated together. And, and frequently that's through a data strategy, a common data strategy across the organization, sometimes employing fintechs, sometimes employing uh, emerging solutions coming from custodians such as BNY Mellon. And there that, that enables them to have a flexible architecture through which they can integrate any you know, improvements that, that they're seeing emerge across the front, middle, and back office. So Christine, while we're talking about business models or how these companies are running themselves and operating, can you just talk about what you're seeing with regard to using internal resources versus working with external vendors? Asset management is one of the most dynamic parts of public asset owners operating models. And, and of course, asset managers can sometimes be understood as part and parcel of investment strategy, but it also really shapes how institutions are organized. But we found that 68% of public asset owners surveyed plan to change their mix of asset managers over the next few years. And what that means is that they are shifting whether assets are managed in-house or whether they're managed externally. And the reasons behind these shifts differ significantly. You know, what, one might assume that performance is a key factor, but there are many other factors that public asset owners consider. You know, some want to internalize because they see is that as more cost effective. Uh, some internalize because they fundamentally have a national mandate to pursue of developing local the local financial sector. Others externalize because they want to benefit from the expertise of external asset managers. And others actually externalize again because you know they see as that being more cost effective. And I will say that the trajectory we see is that when an institution wants to diversify and wants to go into a new asset type or into a new strategy or really refine their strategy, they'll go external to benefit from the expertise of leading asset managers. But over time, they may want to internalize. And, and that's where you know working with a good manager is important. I will say, though, that, that there are trends depending on asset owner type. So central banks ideally have more of their uh, asset management in-house. That's, that's where they want to go, a kind of 80-20 you know, split. Public pension funds are more comfortable externalizing more of their portfolio management. And then sovereign wealth funds really have uh, all sorts of different strategies there from ones that want to be 100% in-house to ones that, that, that envision a, a fully externalized model. Well, that's very interesting. And especially since you said 68% of asset managers are looking to change their mix in terms of how they're managing. And it's interesting to hear that breakdown. Well, let's go back to that point you mentioned about data and why it's so important. I mean, Anthos actually recently did a major report on data and it seems to be surfacing increasingly in, in many conversations. But tell us, based on your research, why is data so important in getting operating models right? Certainly. Look, once upon a time, 
data was and, and the need for digitization was being driven by reporting requirements or, or regulators. But these days, there's a real recognition that data provides value. And data provides value, not just in terms of you know, front office uh, analytics. Data is what provides operational alpha end to end. If you can really understand the operational implications of your front office activities, if you can really understand you know, where you have inefficiencies end to end, you're able to realize value like you never did before. And again, institutions recognize this. When we asked what was the operating model, the top operating model issue really holistically, so end to end, not just in the front office or just in the back office, or just in the middle office, it was data integration and analytics. That was cited by you know, just shy of 50% of institutions. And I think this is really telling because we're in, in a new era where it's through data that institutions are gonna realize value. That's a great description that you use there, that data also provides operational alpha. And we forget, if you go way back to the beginning, institutions were focused on, on yield, and then they've been dealing with lots of different opportunities, diversifying yield, going into different areas. But that's such a critical point that the way you deal with data and the opportunities that it has can actually lead to providing operational alpha. And it's, you know, if, if you are, if you're in the front office, right, there are so many institutions that, that want to do, you know, more ambitious things um, in their investment strategies. And if, if they're doing that, if you're, if you've been in, if you've been in fixed income and you want to, you know, go into equities, if you've been in fixed income and equities and you want to, you know, explore alternatives, you know, that, that decision in the front office has to be made alongside, you know, the capabilities that you see end to end if you want to really be successful. So, you know, if you want to, if you want to go into uh, real estate investments or, or look at sort of the opportunities in hedge funds, you've got to have a middle office and back office integration that's going to be able to handle that and really integrate those decisions. Let's talk about that sort of how you do integrate those decisions. What is important? to do to actually have a successful data transformation? No, certainly. And look, data is very much something that certain institutions or certain people might consider a niche topic. Uh, so it might be something that a, a, a data czar or, or, or someone that's considered to be sort of in the ivory tower of the institution has at the forefront of their mind. And I'm not saying that's not important to have sort of, you know, data specialists, but really if you want a successful data transformation, there are a number of factors at play. And I'll say that you know one of the key points for a successful data transformation is to really integrate that across the organization. So I'd say that you know there's no one size fits all approach to data transformation, but I will speak to you know some of the best practices that BNY Mellon has found through assisting institutions including public asset owners integrating data into their operating model. Now, the first is to really try to focus the effort through a set of key questions. It's a little bit of a, you know, there's this danger of boiling the ocean when it comes to data and trying to give everybody everything. And, you know, we spoke to one institution that said, you know, they started out with this big data project, you know, bu building a data warehouse, and they just 
they had to stop at one point and really take a step back and say, no, why are we doing this? What do I really want my data to tell me? And if you have a set of key questions, such as, you know, what is my exposure today to this or that market? What is my ESG impact? What is my cost per trade? Or stakeholder questions, um, such as, you know, you, you may be a pension fund for which beneficiaries want to understand, you know, who else invests alongside the fund. If you've got those questions, that can be a little bit of a, of a cheat sheet to always sort of test along the way through your data transformation. And then, look, second is you want an agile approach to get going. The danger with data transformations is that institutions will, you know, not just try to boil the ocean, but also um, try to plan implementation for too long and to, with too much detail. And the problem with that is that, you know, if you spend a long time planning your implementation and then another, you know, few years implementing, you'll find that, you know, two, three years down the road, what you'd plan to implement is no longer valid because the data universe and, and the world of analytics and digital will have moved on. And so it's important, of course, you know, you want to plan, you want to have your target information model, your target architecture, your target operating model, and a transition state approach, but this need not be exhaustive. It's better to, you know, focus on a couple of areas, start implementing that, and then improve from there. And then finally, you know, people and culture are very important. Uh, you know, leadership will provide vision and will provide discipline. You've got to have, you know, a data and digitization culture ingrained across your organization. It can't just be in, you know, amongst the portfolio managers. It can't just be among, uh, you know, let's say that the, the digital team, it, everyone has to have a digital and data centric mindset. And that also includes your providers. So a data centric transformation won't succeed if your providers and your partners don't share your vision. You need to have partners and providers who want to build solutions with you, who share your vision, and who are really, really willing to, to you know, get in there with you and solve these data problems together. That's a pretty big order, but all critical approaches. So let me ask you, if you look at specific technologies that are important as these public asset owners seek to overhaul their operating models and tackle such big challenges as, as data transformation, what sort of things and technologies do you see as important out there to help them achieve this? When we spoke to the institutions worldwide, I was surprised to find that the key technology challenges were very much around, as you say, sort of integrating new technologies and tools. That was what 65% of institutions highlighted as their top technology challenge. You know, I would have thought that, you know, maybe costs, maybe providers were might be the problem, but but actually it was it was these new technologies and tools that institutions were really after. And there, the top theme was actually a technology that's been around for a little while, but that's actually really proving to be one that uh, public asset owners are, are considering very actively, and that's cloud. And, you know, cloud is 
offers a lot of benefits, but but it has you know some drawbacks and considerations that public asset owners you know worldwide are actively grappling with. So whether that's uh, privacy, you know whether that's you know the nature and the availability of providers. So you know we see some public pension funds in Europe, for instance, are are very happy to work really closely with the with the major providers that will have you know everything in a in a in a public cloud. But in, there are also institutions that want a more creative approach. So they don't want to have everything on premises, but nor do they want everything to be to be outside their borders. And so we're also seeing many institutions take a hybrid approach where some data remains you know with them in country on premises and then they parse out what data can be out in the public cloud. But we also have institutions that are considering building a national cloud solution. And that will be one that, for instance, the government will run and then uh, institutions such as the public asset owners will avail themselves of that solution. But I'll also mention another point, which is the second top technology challenge that came up in our uh, in our discussions and in our survey was security with, with sort of cybersecurity as top of mind there. And, and that's become a, a really critical concern, especially, you know, given the geopolitical environment today that's that's really brought to the fore the kinds of risks that that countries and national institutions face. And, and this is an area where institutions that are, regardless of size, are finding is extremely important to incorporate across the organization. So it's, it's not just something that sits with IT. It's something that everyone in the organization has to think about, whether it's, you know, individuals that might be at risk of phishing, or whether it's, you know, IT leaders, you know, considering what technologies to employ, or whether it's sort of leaders setting the tone on on issues like uh, like security, and there you know something that we see is increasingly cybersecurity is something that's uh, very much part and parcel of RFPs, and we can't forget that you know the, the these institutions work with a lot of partners, and you know you're only as secure as your partner is. So it's very important that the entire public asset owner ecosystem be tackling cybersecurity. Well, you have covered, Christine, so many critical topics here, and I think particularly some of the points that you've mentioned here, whether it's with regard to uh, data integration or cloud and its use, given its flexibility and the role it can play in operational resilience and the critical importance of cybersecurity. These are issues that companies across the board are facing, but clearly within the industry that you've been focusing on, they are a, a key topic. And also, given the challenges they present, they also present opportunities. Good luck in working with these institutions. Obviously, at Benton York Mellon, you have not only a lot of information, but you also have a lot of talent to work with them and help perhaps solve some of these critical issues. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you for sharing your report with us. And thank you for sharing your insights. You're very welcome, Patricia. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF podcast.